Okay, John chapter 20, verse 19, page 1089 in the Church Bible. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you give anyone sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand. Reach out and put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. Amen. If you could turn with me, please, to the passage that uh, Tim read for us a moment ago. We're going to uh, look this evening at this passage from John chapter 20. Now, um, in the church calendar... Today, the uh, Sunday immediately after Easter, is sometimes called Low Sunday. In Welsh, it's a Silbach, or the Little Sunday. The anticlimax after all the excitement of Easter. But our passage this evening tells us what happens on that first, first Sunday after Easter. But before we get there, it starts with John's account of the evening of the day of Jesus' resurrection itself. And that's what we find in the first part of this passage, um, starting at, uh, where were we, verse, uh, verse 19, and through um, to verse 23. So that's our first section, John's description of what happened in the upper room on that first day after Jesus' resurrection. So first of all, earlier in the day, after having met with Mary Magdalene and the other women, and with uh, Cleopas and one other person who isn't named, on the road to Emmaus that afternoon. In the evening, Jesus meets with 10 of the remaining 11 disciples. Obviously, Judas wasn't there. We know why Judas wasn't there. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there, but, uh, but he wasn't. And there were some other disciples present there as well, it seems. And they met in the locked upper room where they were hiding for fear of the Jewish authorities. And now then... Have you ever had the experience where you need to give an account of something, something that you've done or that you've seen perhaps, 
and to give a blow-by-blow -blow account in details with all in the in and outs of it would simply take too, take too long. So you simplify things a bit and report just the essentials. So, for example, you might take account of what the person that you're speaking to already knows or can very easily define, find out. And so what you say to them is entirely true and they can rely on it, but someone else who takes your words in isolation without that background knowledge may get confused if they don't know the backgrounds. Or perhaps they're already confused because something that somebody else has already told them. Now, in our passage this evening, John is very clear about what he's writing for in this passage. We find that at the end of the passage that Tim read for us in verses 30 to 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's clear enough, but if it wasn't, John underlines this further for us in the next chapter, in the very last verse of his whole gospel, where he says, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So it's clear, therefore, that John is not aiming at writing a completely exhaustive account of absolutely everything that happened on the evening after Jesus' resurrection, or indeed on the evening after that. There are other details, and there are important ones, that we can get from reading the other Gospels, which were almost certainly written already when John was writing his Gospel, because by common consent through various different, uh, various different evidences, um, it's generally accepted that John's Gospel was written, was the last of the four to be written, and possibly sometime after the other three. But anyway, as a result of that, our passage this evening contains things which John has summarized very briefly and which taken in isolation could be a bit confusing or to lead us astray. So we need to compare those with the fuller accounts given in the other Gospels. But at the same time, John tells us something here that isn't mentioned in any of the other Gospels. And for that, he goes into detail, and I hope that that will be a blessing for us this evening. But first, let's look at the first part of the passage, 19 to 23, which is John's summary of what we sometimes call the Great Commission, when the risen Jesus sends his disciples out into the world to preach the gospel. We can read about it in much more detail in Matthew 28, or in Mark 16, or in Luke 24. Mark and Luke write about this exact same occasion when the disciples were gathered in Jerusalem on the day of his resurrection, Matthew tells of this conversation taking place in Galilee a few days later. And in the next chapter, though we're not going to go there, John confirms that after meeting with his disciples in Jerusalem in the other room, the disciples did indeed go to Galilee and met Jesus again there. It wouldn't be at all surprising if he told them the same things in Galilee as he had, as he had told them in Jerusalem, because after all, when the wood is hard, you have to hit the nail more than once. Nevertheless, John's, the first part of John's account is very clear. On the evening of that day, here we're still on the day after the resurrection, so Easter day itself, the first day of the week, the doors were locked and the disciples were for fear of the Jews, sorry, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace to you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So there we have it, the Great Commission, succinctly summarized. But then we move on to verse 22. And this is a bit surprising because it says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on? Didn't the disciples receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, not now, but seven weeks later, not while, we were, not while they were in the upper room on the day of the resurrection, but while they were elsewhere in Jerusalem that day? Well, of course. And that's immediately clear. If we go and look at Luke's account, you needn't turn to it, I'm about to read it out. Luke's account of the same conversation in Luke 24, verse 49. He says there, Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but you tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So John's account is completely accurate. It's just that he condenses into four words what Luke takes 26 to explain. But then we risk getting even more confused by John's next verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what's going on here? Is Jesus really conferring on his disciples the role of Roman Catholic priests with the right to grant or deny forgiveness um, and people's way of, to reconciliation with God and to heaven itself? Well, hardly. But nevertheless, it seems likely that while Jesus was spending this time with his disciples, he talked of many other subjects, including things he had spoken to them about previously during his earlier ministry. And one of them would have been something which he's taught them at least twice before, um, in, as it records in Matthew's Gospel. First of all, in Matthew 16, 18 to 19. I'll read this here. And I tell you, you are Peter. He says, to, this is Jesus speaking to Simon Peter at Caesarea Philippi after Peter has said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says to him, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build your church, and the gate of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the king keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, and then again in Matthew 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, so what Jesus is saying to the disciples here in the upper room echoes something that he's already said to them on twice on two occasions before, which, which, which is a sensible thing for him to do. But that's fine. What does it mean? What are, what, what are we meant to interpret from this? Well, um, the second of those par- passages, I should have said, comes from a discussion of church discipline and what to do when another Christian sins against you and refuses to repent over it. What are these keys of the kingdom of heaven which Jesus is talking about when he was talking to Peter back in Matthew's Gospel? Well, if we read in uh, Luke chapter 11 and verse 52, Jesus says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. That's a passage where Jesus was attacking the teachers of the Jewish law, whose task was meant to be to explain God's laws clearly so that people could understand and follow them, but who instead were adding complexity upon complexity 
to obscure or even reverse their proper meaning. So if those who misuse the keys are those who obscure the word of God and keep people from obedience to him, then it follows that those who use them correctly are the ones that preach God's word faithfully and clearly and whose lives are in accordance with it so that people may hear the gospel and be saved. But if that's what Jesus means by if you forgive the sins of any, here back in John's gospel, what does it mean to withhold forgiveness from any? Shouldn't we forgive the brother who sins against us not just seven times, but 70 times seven? Well, yes, of course we should when he asks for forgiveness. But in that passage in Matthew, Jesus is talking about the time when the, when the brother stubbornly refuses to accept this truth and rejects the gospel and refuses to repent over and over again. And there comes a point when, as Jesus puts it elsewhere, we refrain from casting our pearls before swine or we shake the dust from our feet and we move on. So Jesus thought that, that, that Jesus used this as an opportunity when he was with the, in the upper room with his disciples on his first appearance to them after his resurrection to recap on all of these teachings. And John chose to record that for us. But I wanted to deal with those potentially difficult points in the passage. I found them difficult when I read them anyway. Before moving on to the clearer part from verse 24 onwards. And this is a well-known account of what happened the Sunday after Easter, which only John gives to us. And um, it starts off with a comment that in all that's gone before, one of the eleven, Thomas, called Didymus, was missing. We're not told why that was. There may have been a perfectly good reason. He might have been ill. He might have had a family obligation. We shouldn't assume that the problem was with Thomas, that Thomas was discouraged or that Thomas wasn't expecting to meet the disciples that evening because it does seem that the rest of the disciples weren't expecting it either. Back in Luke's account, again, in Luke's account of the, row of the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, something that Luke alone mentions, we read that the disciples said to Jesus, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us as they were speaking of the empty tomb. The disciples at this stage didn't understand what Jesus had told them about the resurrection. It wasn't that they were expecting him to turn up that evening, that he had an appointment with them. So we can't blame Thomas for not expecting Jesus to have been there with them. Either way, for whatever reason, Jesus was there and Thomas wasn't. And the thing which is surprising is Thomas's reluctance to accept the testimony of those who had been there. These were people who Thomas had known and trusted. He'd spent nearly three years of his life in their company. It's almost as if it wasn't Jesus himself that Thomas was rejecting, but them, his fellow disciples. Even so, a week later, after a week had passed, he was there again. I wonder what that week must have been like for him. All of the others were rejoicing, having seen the law, Lord, and they were bursting to speak out about it, except for the fact that he had told them expressly not to until the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. Thomas would still have been dejected, unconvinced, left out, not sharing in the joy of all of his, uh, his fellow disciples. Now, in the Jewish calendar, this intervening week 
was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when Jerusalem would still have been crowded. Incidentally, I, measured, um, I, I mentioned earlier on that different gospel writers emphasized different things or left things out if they could assume that the people they were writing to already knew them. When Steve was preaching to us this morning, and he mentioned the, great, the three great Jewish festivals when all of Israel would gather together in Jerusalem and they would sing these songs of ascent, just as, such as Psalm 121, on their way. I mentioned earlier on that when we read Matthew's account of the morning of the resurrection, he tells the women, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will meet me. And after a couple of verses, when uh, Matthew tells us about what happens to the guards who are guarding Jesus' tomb, the next thing we read in, uh, um, in, uh, in Matthew's account is, then the disciples went to Galilee as though they had gone there that very day, leaving no time for the events that John and Mark and Luke record for us in this upper room in Jerusalem. Well, what's going on? Well, Matthew was Jewish, and there are numerous aspects of Matthew's gospel which makes it clear that he was writing primarily, not exclusively, but primarily with a Jewish audience in mind. And they would have known that after the Passover, there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they would have known that no devout Jews would be leaving for Jerusalem, for Galilee, or anywhere else until that was over. So the disciples had spent the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Jerusalem, all of them joyous except Thomas. We don't know whether Jesus made any other appearances during that intervening week. Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 that he was often seen by his followers during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And Paul lists several of these for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, including one such appearance where there were 500 people present. Truly the resurrection, in terms of the number of witnesses that there were, the reliability of the, of, of the witnesses, the subsequent um, um, persecutions which people were subject to and yet didn't um, change their eyewitnesses' accounts that they had seen that there is in Jesus truly the evidence for the resurrection in historical terms is overwhelming. But verse 26 of, uh, of uh, our passage this evening um, where it talks about eight days later the disciples were in size again and Thomas was with them. Three things are completely clear. First of all, Jesus' followers were gathering on the first day of the week, that is to say the day of the Sabbath, regularly. This was a regular pattern. After eight days, seems to be a Jewish idiom, counting the first Sunday as well as the second Sunday. So eight days later means on the same day of the following week. That is to say the first day of the week, we would call it Sunday. So the first thing, the disciples were gathering regularly on the first day of the week. That was already their pattern. But Thomas himself, this time around, followed this pattern, and he was there. Whatever the reason was, this was that he was missing the previous week's gathering, he was there now. And it's also clear that at this stage, whether or not he had appeared to other people in the meantime, the risen Christ still had not appeared to Thomas as of this time. But he meets him now. And Jesus deals him graciously. Jesus doesn't condemn Thomas, but Jesus gives him all the proofs that he had commanded. He puts his hand in his side, he puts his hand, fingers in the holes where the nails were, 
And Thomas is satisfied. And that was an amazing blessing for Thomas to be able to see the risen Jesus, to be able to hold, touch him and hold him and put his hands, put his fingers in Jesus' wounds, just as he had asked. And yet there is an important sense in which Thomas has missed out on the blessing as well, as Jesus makes clear in the, uh, in, in, in the next verse or two. After all, what blessing could be greater than seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ with your own eyes? Well, how about not seeing him and yet believing him? Jesus makes that clear. You have seen and you have believed, or rather, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. For example, that was the case for the people whom Peter was writing to in his first epistle, 1 Peter. Christians in places far away from Jerusalem, who in all likelihood weren't even from a Jewish background, and yet they were facing persecution at the time for their faith in Christ. Peter writes to them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, yet you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And of course, it was to such of those and to such as us that John himself was writing. Those last two verses of, of, of our passage again. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe and that by believing you might have left life in his name. John's audience were not going to get to see the risen Christ with their own eyes in the way that he had, but he wanted them to hear his testimony and, unlike Thomas, believe on the basis of the account. So then, if you're a Christian here tonight, you have a blessing that was denied to Jesus' own disciples. They believe Jesus having seen them. We get to believe Jesus not having seen him. And if you're not a Christian yet this evening, then that blessing is also available to you. As I've already mentioned, Jesus' resurrection has been described as the best attested fact in human history. But you still need to believe it. You still need to accept it. You still need to turn from your sin and accept him. And if you do that, then there's no greater blessing that we know of. Thank you. I'll hand back to John now.